for the week beginning the 29th of January, this is the history of pop culture. I'm Chesney Forks Porter. Hello. Let's get started. Today on the show, we go back to the college dorm room of the world's most famous obvious alien, Mark Zuckerberg, as we look at the launch and the global domination of Facebook. And whilst I've still got some teeth left in my mouth, we crack open the bottle of conversation all about the world's most popular sugary drink. We look at the founding of the Coca-Cola Company put away those Mentos. And just like the lead character of our next story, I have seven small men that do my bidding, but don't tell the tax office. We feast our eyes on the release of the very first animated feature film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. But first... For our first story today, we enter that dirty student dorm room of a young Mark Zuckerberg, as on the 4th of February 2004, he set up a silly little website that would go on to become one of the most dominant and controversial forces in the world of tech and beyond. The 4th of February 2004, Mark Zuckerberg launches Facebook. People want to go on the internet and check out their friends, so why not build a website that offers that friends, pictures, profiles. I'm talking about taking the entire social experience of college and putting it online. So what the hell is a Facebook when she's at home anyway? Well, Facebooks were quite a common thing around US universities, and they were exactly what they sound like. Basically, Facebooks are student directories that have details and pictures of all the students in a book. Faces in a book. Now, in 2004, at Harvard University, a young alien student called Mark Zuckerberg realised there was probably a market for having a digital Facebook and so essentially said, yeah, no worries, I'll make one. I mean, he actually went a little bit further than that. He's actually pretty much quoted as saying, it's silly that it would take Harvard a few years to make one when I could do it better and do it in a week. So he got together with his then buddy, uh, Eduardo Saverin, and they both agreed to invest $1,000 into the project. And then, on the 4th of February, 2004, they launched thefacebook.com. Now, my big question here is, where did these two uni students get $1,000 each to invest? When I was at university, I was tempted to pull the chewing gum off the pavement because I didn't have enough money for a fresh pack. So $1,000 to me seems crazy. Um, and to use some terminology that may make me sound rather trendy, the Facebook very much popped off. According to Zuckerberg, in the first 24 hours of being online, they had already had around 1,500 site members around their university. But within six days of the site being online, the controversy that so often follows Mark Zuckerberg throughout his life reared its head for the first time. A few other members of the university accused Zuckerberg of misleading them as they had asked him to help build a social networking site with them, only for him to take their ideas and build a competitor platform in the Facebook. These accusations of misleading and manipulation would follow Mark throughout his career. Uh, so it's just nice to know at least that he was consistently a bastard rather than, you know, just sort of rearing his head every now and then. These issues are explained a lot more in the film The Social Network, which is the clip I played for you earlier on. So 
We move slightly further forward, uh, one month in time, and now over half the Harvard student body are registered on the Facebook. And so the Zuck put together a team and turned the Facebook into a full-blown company. And by March of 2004, the Facebook expanded to include students in all Ivy League schools. And then by the summer of that year, it was open to almost every university in the US and Canada. And yet, when I launched Bumbuck last year, I could barely get anybody from my street to sign up. Maybe it was the name. I don't know. So, roll on. 2005, and the Facebook is no more, as Mark and the team pay 200 grand to purchase Facebook.com, and they've since gone on to purchase plenty of quite clever URLs, actually. For example, if you meant to type Facebook.com into your browser, but you added an extra B and typed Facebook, it will still work. If you forget the F at the start and just typed in Facebook, it will still work. And if you're feeling particularly lazy and you just typed in fb.com, guess what? It'll still work. Now, by the end of 2005, Facebook is available to all US university and high school students, as well as 21 other educational institutions around the world, like in the, this beautiful country of the United Kingdom and beyond. And so, by the end of 2005, there were 6 million active users on Facebook. Fast forward to 2006, and the big switch happened, and Facebook became open to anyone aged 13 and over. And that is where the floodgates opened. By 2008, Facebook had over 100 million active users and the world had gone proverbially mad for it. The next year, on February the 9th, 2009, they decided to introduce a feature that has gone on to become one of the most influential and most debated online features ever. The like button. That tiny little thumbs up that has gone on to become a popularity symbol and a source of anxiety, desperation and validation for many, many people, myself included. It began as an innocuous way for someone to quickly say how much they loved your holiday photos. And many people have debated how different the internet would be today without the like button ever being introduced. But that's not for me to comment on, mainly because I can't be bothered. It was around this time that a young Chesney-forked porter joined Facebook. In fact, it was exactly the 8th of February 2009, at the ripe young age of 10, three years younger than I should have been to join the service. So that means next week will be my 15th anniversary with Marky Mark as my digital overlord. And my arrival on Facebook predated the introduction of the like button by one whole day. Now, let's just focus on the big stuff from here on out. 2012, Facebook acquires Instagram for $1 billion, which to me sounds relatively cheap, considering that the Instagram brand is valued at $47 billion today. Sounds like a smart investment to me. Now, if only me and a few mates had had a whip round and bought it first. Talking about big business, though, Facebook went public on the stock market later that year in 2012 and was valued at $104 billion, the largest valuation for a newly listed public company ever. And the acquisitions, they don't stop there. As in 2014, Facebook announced it has acquired the virtual reality brand Oculus for a reported $2 billion. They've managed to keep Oculus at the forefront of virtual reality technology 
And it really marked the Facebook company's first step into doing something in the tech world completely unrelated to social media. But maybe, just maybe, it also gave us our earliest insight into Mark the Alien's future plans for the metaverse. One more big acquisition to talk about in 2014 was the Facebook acquisition of WhatsApp Messenger for $19 billion. And again, they've done very well with the company, basically making it the biggest instant messaging service in the world, with over 3 billion users and a 2022 valuation of $105 billion. I am getting very overwhelmed by all these large numbers. And now we come... To today. Ah, the fiery hellhole that is today. And Facebook, as a company, is now meta, encompassing basically everything the internet has to offer. A reported 77% of internet users use at least one service that Meta has to offer. And though Facebook these days may be more of a place for your mum to post a minion photo or an inspirational quote, its parent company, Meta, still ran by the world's most wooden man, Mark Zuckerberg, is the big daddy of internet communication. And the future of this weird AR, VR metaverse is firmly in his cold, robotic hands. The launch of Facebook, very simply, for me, feels like a 10 out of 10 on my popometer. Now then, time for a few shorter stories from the week in pop culture. The 29th of January 1936 saw the very first Baseball Hall of Fame. Inductees included, of course, Babe Ruth. On the 29th of January 1942, the first edition of Desert Island Discs airs on Radio 4, the UK's longest-running radio show. Also on the 29th of Jan 1959, the Disney film Sleeping Beauty is released. More on Disney films later. 29th of Jan 1964, Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove is released, and on the same date in 1966, the musical Sweet Charity, famous for its song Hey Big Spender, premieres on Broadway. A couple more for the 29th of January. In 2014, Cristiano Ronaldo became the first non-Spanish player to captain Real Madrid. And on the 29th of Jan 2018, Black Panther releases in cinemas. Wakanda forever, everybody. On the 30th of January 1965, it was the state funeral for Winston Churchill. At the time, the world's largest ever state funeral. And on the 30th of January 1975, Erno Rubik applies for a patent of the Rubik's Cube. On the 31st of January 2022, the viral online game Wordle is purchased by the New York Times. And on the 1st of February 1962, the book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is published. On the 2nd of February 1952, the first collection of clothes by Givenchy was shown. I don't know if that's how you say that name. But on the 2nd of February 1962 was also the release of the first G.I. Joe toy. Finally, on the 3rd of February 1997 was the debut of the Howard Stern radio show. Now, in a world where a new energy drink flogged by an influencer seems to hit the shelves every minute and every flavour of soft drink imaginable floods your local waitrose, there's one drink above all that is the undisputed king. But to achieve that title, someone had to lie, cheat and steal to get there. With nearly two billion servings sold every day, let's talk about Coca-Cola. And the 29th of January 1892 
the day the Coca-Cola Company was founded. So, let me take you back in time. 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 <coughs> anyway, back to 1885 in Columbus, Georgia, to an American Civil War soldier called John Pemberton, who was absolutely off his face on morphine and was looking for a substitute to wean him off. He was inspired by some products already available at the time and created a medicinal alcoholic wine that included extracts from the coca leaves and from the cola nut. Can you see the reference to the name there? That part of America then went into Prohibition, and so John needed to create a non-alcoholic version of this drink. And so this was when John Pemberton officially created the non-alcoholic drink known as Coca-Cola. He began selling it in his pharmacy in 1886 for five cents a serving, or around $1.50 today. The drink was sold as a medicine, and marketing for the drink claimed it could cure morphine addiction, indigestion and impotence. Bit of a different claim than my nan giving me flat coke to soothe my stomach when I'm ill. So, was Coca-Cola actually medicinal, or was it just making people feel very good because of one of its key ingredients? The coca leaf. The leaf that shady people harvest all around the world to extract cocaine. At the time, a typical serving of Coca-Cola had nine milligrams of cocaine in. So no wonder they were feeling better and weaning off the morphine. They were literally just getting addicted to a completely different substance. The majority of cocaine was eventually taken out in 1904 when the Coca-Cola company started using spent Coca-Cola leaves. And nowadays, Coca-Cola doesn't have any cocaine in it at all, as it uses a cocaine-free version of the coca leaf. Quite interestingly, though, today, Coca-Cola work with a factory to source their coca leaves, and that factory is the only one in America legally allowed to handle and work with coca leaves. Anyway, after that quick but lovely cocaine break, back to John Pemberton, who in 1886 suddenly died just a year after inventing Coca-Cola. So, I mean, it clearly wasn't that good of a medicine. But here's where it gets a little bit complicated. John had given ownership of the Coca-Cola brand to his son, Charlie, who was also a bit of an opioid addict. But John's business partner, Asa Candler, didn't like the idea of this man being in control of the company. And so upon John's death, made his moves to take control, even going as far as appearing at John's funeral and offering his wife $300 for the rights to the business. And you know what? It all worked. He managed to pay his way into owning full control of the Coca-Cola business, which is probably for the best, because by 1894, Charlie Pemberton, John's son, was found unconscious and high as a kite. <laughs> Ten days later, he died. So... Now we come to the day we are talking about, the 29th of January, 1892, and Asa Candler officially sets up the company that still stands to this day, the Coca-Cola Company. So, now, enough history. Let's have some fun. That's what we're here for. There is a lot to talk about with Coca-Cola. These days... Coca-Cola is the most sold drink in the world, and I really mean that. Obviously, still more people are drinking water from the tap every day. But if we are talking sales, 1.9 billion servings of Coca-Cola are sold a day. 
compared to 1.3 billion bottles of water are sold every day. If we take that 1.9 billion figure, that equates to 21,000 servings of Coca-Cola sold every second. And that's just actual branded Coke, none of the uh, other competitors. That, to me, is utterly astounding. In the time it would take for me to finish this sentence, over 100,000 servings would have flown off the shelves. And another fact that actually really interested me uh, when I was researching for this is that Coca-Cola themselves don't actually create the drink as we know and consume it. The only thing Coca-Cola actually make is the concentrated syrup that is then distributed to bottling companies around the world who mix it with the sugar and the water to create Coca-Cola. Now, most places have the same recipe, which involves mixing cola syrup with fizzy water and corn syrup. Though, very famously, Coca-Cola in Mexico is renowned for using natural cane sugar instead of corn syrup, which is why many people consider it to be the best version of the drink, meaning people all over the world try and import Coke from Mexico. Hey, come on, it was too easy. Now, at some point in its history, Coca-Cola has been officially available in every single country in the world except for two. Can you guess which ones? I'll give you a second. It's not that hard. OK, it's Cuba and North Korea. Though, of course, since 2022, Coca-Cola ceased all business in Russia, too. Now then, let's talk about the real fun stuff. Weird Coca-Cola flavours. Over its lifetime, Coca-Cola has launched some pretty crazy stuff, including, onto the poor general public of Japan in 2009, a green tea-flavoured Coca-Cola, which I can't imagine tastes any better than dipping a foot fungus into your drink. Now, some parts of Europe woke up one morning in the 2000s to find their world completely altered, as they found cola black on their store shelves. Coca-Cola infused with coffee. It only lasted two years, so clearly the coffee didn't kick in. Coca-Cola Fiber Plus was released in Asia in 2017 and is still available today, with additional dietary fibre included in the drink to make sure your bowels run smoother than the delicious taste of Coca-Cola. One more to talk about. In uh, more recent years, Coca-Cola has decided to create some rather more abstract products, including Coca-Cola Starlight with a space-inspired flavour, Coca-Cola Dream World with a dream-inspired flavour, and who could forget, of course, Coca-Cola Movement with a completely confusing transformation-inspired flavour. There is a load of stuff we can talk about with Coca-Cola, so I'm sure we will bring them back up again on the show. But it's hard not to say that this is not another 10 out of 10 on my Popometer. It is the founding of a company that has become pretty much the most recognisable in the whole world. So I'm happy to say that Coca-Cola is getting a full 10 out of 10 on my popometer. Now, in our final story today, we're going to be talking about Disney and the first full-length animated feature film. So to celebrate, let's play a little game. I'm going to give you the lead actors for some Disney films. You just need to tell me what the film is I'm talking about. Let's start out with a couple of easy ones. Which Disney film stars Edina Menzel, Kristen Bell and Josh Gad? Of course... It's Frozen. Which Disney movie stars Owen Wilson and Larry the Cable Guy? That's Cars. 
All right then, let's up the stakes a little bit. Which Disney movie stars Jodie Benson and Samuel E. Wright? Going once, going twice. It's the original Little Mermaid. Two more for you. Which Disney movie stars Roger Bart, Danny DeVito and James Woods? It's Hercules. And finally, last one. Which Disney movie stars Joaquin Phoenix and Rick Moranis? Big names. It's Brother Bear. There you go. There's your guessing game for the week. Now's a good time to mention that if you're enjoying the show and want a daily dose of pop culture history, you can head to our TikTok page at History of Pop Culture. On there, you'll find a daily minute-long hit of the biggest stories from today in the history of pop culture. And they're pretty good little videos too. Now then, back to the show. So, we've ascertained your level of knowledge on some of Disney's biggest hits, but now let's look back at the OG, the grandmama of animation, the film that started it all. The very first feature-length animated film, released on the 4th of February, 1938, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. So, the Walt Disney Company, as we know it, is now one of the biggest companies in the world, with its hands in the pie of Pixar, Fox, Marvel, ESPN, National Geographic and lots more. But back in 1993, Walt Disney was just a relatively successful animation studio known for making fun, short animated films called the Silly Symphony series. And the idea for many people in the industry of making a full-length feature film out of animation was inconceivable. But not for the famous, definitely unproblematic genius, Walt Disney. Walt Disney was dead set on making an animated full-length film. And before the idea of Snow White came about, other stories were considered, including Gulliver's Travels, Bambi, Alice in Wonderland, and even Homer's Odyssey. But in July 1934, Walt Disney officially announced his plans for creating Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and turning it into a full-length movie. The industry were not convinced, with the press labelling the project as Walt Disney's folly, assuming that the project would ruin the company and that nobody would wish to sit through a 90-minute cartoon due to bright colours and the lack of any real emotional connection. Yeah, do you know what? I'm with you. I'd much rather sit through a black-and-white silent film, thanks very much. None of this modern pencil-drawing nonsense. Now, Walt Disney assembled his animators on a soundstage and acted out the plot of Snow White for three hours, which to me sounds like literally the worst Edinburgh Fringe show you could accidentally walk into. Most of his animators were excited by the project, but still, of course, quite apprehensive because it really was such a massive leap ahead of its time. Walt's own wife and his brother Roy both tried to talk him out of it, but he was not budging on his ideas. When working through the film, there were, of course, many changes to the story and characters, with one of the biggest plot points being the cutting down on the amount of murder attempts. Feels fair, really. As in the original Brothers Grimm fairy tale, the wicked stepmother tried to kill Snow White three times, whereas Disney thought just the one poison apple was probably enough. Also, the actual character traits of the seven dwarves was up in the air for a long time before the final iteration was settled upon. 
original versions of the script, saw the mute dwarf Dopey be actually one of the chattiest characters in the film. But when they struggled to find a suitable voice actor, they just cut all his lines entirely. I could think of a few movies where cutting a character's line would have been a better option to what we got, to be honest. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I love the story of how Adriana Casalotti was awarded the role of Snow White. Her father was a vocal coach and the Disney casting team called him up to ask for any recommendations of local actors or actresses. But whilst he was speaking, the team heard Adriana's voice in the background and offered her in for an audition. She then beat out over 100 other women to claim the part. And for her time as Snow White, Casalotti was paid $980, or the equivalent of 21 grand today. I mean, you know, I wouldn't turn down 21 grand, but it feels a bit cheap for one of the most iconic Disney characters of all time. Now, of course, contrary to modern day history, the company was not flush with cash, and Walt Disney himself had to remortgage his own home to finance the film. As the 250 grand budget he originally set eventually grew to production costs of one and a half million dollars at the time of completion. So it was a huge gamble. Did it pay off? Well, come on, you know it did. It was an instant mega hit, playing in cinemas all over the world for months and instantly becoming one of the most profitable movies of all time. Critics hailed it as a major success. It appeared on the cover of Time magazine and Walt Disney was even presented with an honorary Academy Award for the sheer artistic merit of the movie. 1987, Snow White herself is given a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and remains the only Disney princess to have one. And the American Film Institute ranked in 2008 that Snow White was the greatest animated film of all time. It's been a big week this week, I must admit. We've had two major 10 out of 10 stories followed by this Snow White story, which you could argue is the real start of Walt Disney's world-eating empire. And without Snow White's runaway success, we probably wouldn't have all the other beloved animated Disney movies we have today. And in general, the whole landscape of animated cinema may be a completely different one. But... If we are taking it on just the merit of the movie and the cultural legacy it's left behind, I am going to give the release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves an 8 out of 10 on my popometer. Right then, final verdict time. What is the most influential story of the week? It's a real tough call. Uh, what has created more of a legacy for itself? Coca-Cola becoming the one liquid empire of the world, or Facebook and the dawning of a brand new metaverse. I think I'm going to have to look to the future for this, because both brands are two of the most recognisable and relevant brands today. But in 50 years' time, will there still be a Facebook? Maybe yes, maybe no. But will there still be a bottle of Coca-Cola at your local shop? Absolutely yes. This week, entering the History of Pop Culture Hall of Fame, joining last week's winner, the launch of the Apple Mac, is the founding of the Coca-Cola Company. And that is the History of Pop Culture for the week, beginning the 29th of January. 
we are still brand new so i would love to know what you liked what you didn't and anything you think we missed or that we should talk about in future editions please send through any comments you have straight to me using the email chesney at tleproductions.co.uk that is chesney at tleproductions.co.uk or through my instagram chesneyfm Today's show was researched, written, produced and presented by me, Chesney Forks Porter, and it's a TLE production. Have a lovely week. See you next time. Bye-bye now. Listener.